If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In spite of his humble birth, he seemed born for the throne. Nature had given him all the great qualities that make a hero, and even some of those that make a great king. His beard, dyed black, was in stark contrast to his hair which had gone completely white. His natural constitution was strong and robust, of tall stature. His complexion was sombre and weather-beaten, with a longish face, an aquiline nose, and a well-shaped mouth, but with a lower lip slightly jutting out. He had small, piercing eyes, with a sharp and penetrating stare. His voice was rough and loud, though he managed to soften it on occasion, as self-interest or caprice demanded. He had no fixed abode. His court was his military camp. His palace was a tent. His throne was placed in the middle of his weapons, and his closest confidants were his bravest warriors. Intrepid in combat, he pushed bravery to the limits of rashness and was always to be found in the midst of danger among his braves as long as the action lasted. And yet, sordid avarice and his unheard-of cruelties soon wearied his own people, and the excesses and horrors to which his violent and barbarous character led him made Persia weep and bleed. He was at once admired, feared, and execrated. Hello and welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durimple. Well, who sounded a little bit like you're doing a, an audition for a major theatrical production <laughs> in the West End. Is this some kind of itch that you've wanted to scratch for a while? Because that was really, that was a very powerfully delivered monologue there, young man. Very good. So that was the wonderful Père Bazin. And I discovered these letters by this French Jesuit, which never been published in English. They're still only in the original Jesuit magazine, which first published them in the 1730s. <laughs> It's only found in the British Library. I've I managed to get out these volumes. And this Jesuit had originally gone as a missionary to Persia in the 1720s, ended up because he had some medical training as the personal doctor and physician of Nader Shah. Who is the subject of this? podcast today. And that gorgeous translation is my wonderful, much-missed friend, Bruce Winnell, who uh, who loved and dived deep into the subject and, and produced these wonderful translations. We're talking about Nadir Shah, um, who is the subject of that that very dramatic, beautifully delivered monologue from my learned friend over there, uh, described as <laughs> by some as the Persian Napoleon, 
Although really it would be better to call Napoleon, who came a century later as the European Nader Shah, because Napoleon admired him. And, um, you know, we've done a little bit of dabbling into Nader Shah together, haven't we, when we did the Kohenor book? Again, the first thing that brought us together. We had great fun doing this. Oh. Yes, I mean, we, yes, we... we- <laughs> Our eyes looked across a crowded warlord. (laughs) The rest is history. Um, It was that black beard and white shock of hair that brought us together. Exactly. Well, yes, the black beard and the piercing eyes will come up quite a lot um, in this podcast. This uh, King of Kings who had actually, you know, you know how we love to talk about an origin story, but he did have a very, very modest origin story. And some think that that's why Napoleon kind of fell head over heels for him. Because like Nader Shah, Napoleon also did not have an illustrious beginning in life. He wasn't a blue blood either. And yet he was a man with dreams of conquering the world. We'll have more of that in a little while. In some ways, like the man we were dealing with uh, last week, Timur, who, as we know, started off as a sheep stealer. Yeah. So look, this is the story today. Nader Shah's story is uh, the story of a self-made man who overcame extraordinary odds in the 18th century. And this is at a time when Persia is facing enemies on all sides. And the leadership is disintegrating. Nobody's listening to anybody. There is violent civil strife. And here is a a boy, Nader, who comes from nothing and yet is hailed as the man who saved Persia from destruction and brought it back from the brink. We should actually just maybe say at this point what we have said before, but it's worth repeating, that Persia as a political unit had almost completely disappeared for 400 years. That uh, after the Arab conquests, Persia was just absorbed into the first Umayyad, then the Abbasid caliphates, was just a region in a glass, vast global Islamic empire that stretched from Gibraltar or, or even beyond to Al-Andalus, right through to Sindh and the Indus River. And it's only at the time of Ferdowsi that you begin to get the revival of Persia as a courtly language. And then only with the Safavids, who we discussed last episode, that Persia, for the first time, gets reunited in some sort of shape comparable to its Sasanian and Achaemenid past. And you have a consciously Persian, ethnically Persian ruler speaking Persian as the center of an empire which reflects in some way the former boundaries of ancient Persia. And the Safavids have built this wonderful empire which which stretches from the borders of the Ottomans to the borders of the Mughals. And it looks during the childhood of Nader Shah as if all that is falling apart again. Well, that's because the walls are closing in and also because after you've had, you know, the great Safavid renaissance, if you like, you have a number of unworthy successors to that sort of beginning, that that pushback and revival, who have frittered it all away, who have become less interested in governing, less interested in the welfare of their people, less interested in how much is in the coffers as long as there's enough for their own pleasures. And so the place is looking as if it may be crushed. And Nader Shah is right in the midst of this. He's born in 1688 in Dastagard. It's a, a village in Khorasan uh, in present-day Iran. But it's sort of, I mean, Khorasan, I think it's good to describe. It's sort of northeastern Iran where Afghanistan and Iran kiss, isn't it? That's where we're talking about. And it, it goes on into, it defies that modern boundary because Khorasan included quite a lot of modern Afghanistan and particularly Herat, which we talked about in, in earlier issues. And which we'll talk about again because Herat figures here too. Which we'll talk about again, which was this extraordinary centre of civilization at this period in history. 
and this place that today feels so incredibly remote was was a place of of huge learning of center of architecture the arts but nada didn't have the privilege of enjoying any of these spoils because he is born in a poor dirt poor family his family with people are a semi nomadic tribe who settled in the region the afshars yeah the afshars i'm so i'm turkmen in origin and one of the seven tribes of the Kizilbush, the, you know, the red caps, the Kizilbush that we've talked about in previous episodes, who helped the Safavid dynasties establish their power in Iran. But even though, you know, he comes from this line of people who are very important in Persian history, his family is not that important. They are forced back to the land and the land is not kind to them. And there are two divergent stories about his childhood. In one version, his dad is a shepherd. And in another, he makes fur hats. And I suppose the two could both be true. You could make fur hats and be a shepherd. The two are not mutually exclusive. <laughs> You've got time on your hands. I mean, I think shepherding's quite full time, full on. As a goat herd, I can, I can thoroughly second that thought. But the hand-to-mouth existence of living on the land at that time, and you know, the sources that I've been looking at do place him in a, in a nomadic herding family. They have to take the livestock, you know, miles away to graze. And he's doing this when he's just a little boy. You know, imagine this sort of skinny, scabby-kneed child having to take on the responsibility of many animals. And he has to take them to greener pastures. And when he does, you know, there's always the threat of banditry, not just animals, not just, you know, sort of predatory animals who might come and pick off your herd. But also, you know, there are Uzbek tribes that are rampaging around at this time. And Nader has got to get tough very early. And one thing that you sort of get to know very quickly about Nader Shah is that he never tried to conceal his poverty, whereas some people try to go back in time and rewrite the blood that runs in their veins and reprint their DNA. He never does that. He had a personal historian, you, you must have come across him. Mahdi Mirza, yeah. Mahdi Mirza, who's, who said about him, the sword takes its merit from the natural strength of its temper, not from the mine from which the iron was taken. Lovely. Meaning, you know, yeah, he's made of dirt and stuff, but it doesn't matter. Actually, I'll just run through a few of the stories because there are lots of bullshit stories <laughs> which flow around after a great man has died. We love a good bullshit story on this pod. <laughs> so there were stories of him fighting with lions, panthers and bears. Oh my. Another one has neither playing with other children and, and immediately calling himself the king of this band of children. And letting other children rule smaller parts of this sort of imaginary kingdom that he makes in this rugged fields that he has. You kind of know this kind of story just isn't true. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know. It sounds very sus and it sounds very familiar to other stories. I mean, when I wrote the uh, Udham Singh story, though, he was also fighting leopards and lions and bears, oh my. But the one thing that did sort of stand out from this was this story that he used to make the children fight each other. He used to make them into princes that does sound and right, fight it? each other. That sounds about right, doesn't it? And whoever won, he would give them his own clothes as prizes. And then I read somewhere that he would have to run home naked often, much to his mother's irritation. <laughs> and as somebody who's stuff. frequently replacing socks after PE, I can only sympathise. Let's talk about his appearance for a bit, because um, that great imposing figure, he's the man who thinks every photograph or image taken of him is, is him posing for a passport photo. I mean, he never smiles. He's always very stern. He's very glaring. But imagine those eyes in the head of a, a young boy, because that's what some of the early historians talk about, that these eyes are piercing. Piercing black eyes and that piercing voice over and over again, you hear that, yeah. 
they bang on about his voice all the time, that he has this voice that carries over great distances that people cannot resist. They have to obey. But in the end, you know, as William's first quote suggests, you know, there's a, a strapping man who appears. You know, they say he was over six feet tall, which is really very unusual for the day. And overwhelmingly austere, as you say. If you think of the other rulers of the time, you think of the pictures of the early Mughals like Humayun and Babur, or the pictures of the Safavid Shahs with their wonderful fluffy moustaches looking like rather like they come out of the Battle of Britain and should be flying in, a, in the cockpit of a spitfire. Nadia looked more like a monk. Uh, and there's a mm. famous portrait, which I got once to an exhibition I curated in New York and saw in the flesh for the first time. And it's done by one of the painters that he actually kidnapped from Delhi and brought back to Central Asia. And it's about six foot tall. And he's in sort of just brown fustian. He looks as much like a, a monk or a, a, a friar than he does a, a warlord. And he's this grim character. He's, he, he's, he's deeply austere, deeply grim, and very serious. You know, there were not many jokes in, in the court of Nader Shah. No, and maybe looking at his origin story, you can understand why. Because, you know, he is living this terribly difficult life, but, you know, happy to a point because his father adores him. He has a younger brother, but, you know, the chroniclers say Nada was the out-and-out favourite. Now, again, you know, they may be back-projecting, but he was loved. He wasn't educated, practically illiterate, but really very, very good on horseback, very good with a spear. This life of subsistence, though, what it meant for Nader in his childhood was that, you know, you just, you lose some of your flock, you have a bad winter. This is the difference between, you know, eating and not eating. So that first imprint of his life is one of being tough and one of one of hardship. And as you say, this, this obsession with war, this seems to be a, a big deal in his life from the beginning. There's a, a lovely story that he comes across an imam who's describing to him the qualities of heaven. And Nada asks, would there be any wars in heaven? Would we be able to fight? And, and the imam says, no, no, it's only peace. The delights of heaven do not include warfare. To which Nada replies, no war in paradise. How can there be any delights then? Yeah. So this is a dude who likes a puncher, right, from the start. So let's just, I mean, let's remind everybody of what this world is and, and the Safavids, what's happened to the Safavids since, you know, the, the time of Shah Ismail. As Barnaby Rogerson wonderfully described, Persia is recovering from Timur. And in the northwest, in Tabriz, in the hills above Tabriz, this extreme Sufi sect who are strongly allied with Shiism uh, emerges from the mountains with this very charismatic character, Shah Ismail, who is sort of messianic and believes that he is the the Messiah, the um, the Mahdi to come. And his followers are both warriors and holy men. And this charisma that he exudes is sort of partly that of a warrior leader, partly that of a religious leader. And using this charisma, he sweeps through Persia and creates this great empire, initially centered on Tabriz, but which moves to Isfahan. And in our last episode, we had that wonderful description of the golden age of Isfahan under the Safavids. This is the, the setting to the beginning of this story. Although, I mean, you, you know, you have you still have the things that those great rulers left behind, but now the person who has uh, taken the helm is a man called Shah Hussein, and he has this brilliant nickname. 
Yakshidir, which is the Persian for let it be, because everything his advisors, he surrounds himself with this network of, of spies and eunuchs and basically hangers on. And whatever they present to him, saying, I think this would be a really good idea, Shah, he says, let it be. Yakshadir, let it be. So he agrees with anybody who flatters him. He is a bad ruler. He is not a good ruler. He loves pleasure. He builds up the harem. He concentrates on what is being banqueted on. And, you know, he has no interest in his people. And I have to say, it's one of the great features of Persian history, this this pursuit of pleasure. You see it in the Achaemenids, you see it in the uh, in the Sasanians with their gorgeous plates with pictures of feasts and uh, and hunting. And, and it, they are one of the great pleasure-loving peoples of history. And yet, uh, this is not the style of Nadir, as we'll see. No, it isn't. He, you know, this man is in charge. Nadir's life, while this man is living it up in his capital, Nadir's life is getting a lot harder because at the age of 13, his father, who loves him very much, dies. So now it's up to Nadir, the oldest son, to find a way to support his mother and his family. And, you know, there are sources that say he couldn't do the herding on his own. So he turns to gathering sticks for firewood, which he takes to market. You know, years later, when he returns in, in triumph from the sack of Delhi, which we're going to come on to in a moment, he goes back, he takes his army back to his birthplace and he makes a speech to his generals, which gives you some idea of his, his own idea of his early life of, of privation. He says, you now see to what height it has pleased the Almighty to exalt me from hence and waving on this sort of you know desolate place. Learn not to despise men of low estate. Again, very good quote that. Lovely. Yeah. Isn't it a great quote? It's a great quote. So, you know, he's, he's sort of struggling away. But at the age of 15, his fortunes change because, you know, sticks clearly aren't enough. They're not going to feed you. So he enrolls as a musketeer for the governor of Khorasan, who, by all accounts, is a terrifying, bellowing, very um, scary man. <laughs> you know, and he sort of assembles this, this militia of nobly need teen boys who are going to defend Khorasan. And this is where, for the first time, Nader is exposed to a gun. And it completely enthralls him. Because, you know, until this point, it's that, you know, we've talked about the Persians on horseback, bow and arrow, and the lance. These are the things which are chivalrous fighting. You know, from top to bottom, this is the way the Persians fight. The Ottomans, they've known about firearms for some time, which may explain why they're doing so well. And pressing in on Persia's borders. If you remember in our lovely um, episode on the, the fall of Constantinople, the, the Ottomans right back at the time of uh, Mehmet the Conqueror bring in this Hungarian dude called Orban. And Orban, maybe or maybe not any relation of the current... Uh, Victor. <laughs> exactly. He builds the, the super weapon, which smashes down the great Theodosian walls of Constantinople. I remember that episode so well, yeah. And after that, guns become a big part of Ottoman warfare. And both the Mughals and the Safavids, who are the two other great warrior nations of the same period, are much slower to take up this thing. And the Safavids really do not have a major artillery. So Nada's interest in artillery is a new and striking thing. It's unusual. It makes him an outlier. And also he has to thank the governor of Khorasan for this because he provides you know, his young recruits, his young, slightly useless recruits with a musket, which is the old fashioned thing where you had dry powder in a pouch that was you know, covered in grease and you rip the paper and you pour it in and then you put in your ball of metal and 
and it's it's cumbersome, it's slow, but it is devastating anew. And it's also considered by the old swordsmen and the old archers as somehow cheating. Oh, loosh. Yeah, it's not gentleman's. No, it's a, it's a scoundrel's weapon. And that remains true in Mughal India. So you have the Ottomans who get the hang of this early on and go for it. And the Safavids don't and the Mughals don't. And the Mughals belatedly bring in European gunners. And, and there's a wonderful description of an entire suburb of Delhi called Faringipura to the north of Shah Jahanabad at this period. The area of the foreigners. The area of the foreigners. And they're all yeah. artillerymen. And we have these sort of characters, these sort of chancers and uh, and so on, like Nicola Manucci, who's this very dodgy Venetian who tries his hand at anything. And sometimes he pretends he's a, he's a kind of faith healer. Sometimes he pretends he's a holy man. And at one point during the Civil War, he, he tells them all he's a great expert in artillery. And this is what the Mughals expect Europeans to do. So he's recruited into Aurangzeb's artillery at one point. Well, I mean, Nader is not a, a European, but he has now seen and admired and loved the strength that a little man can have with a gun. And again, you know, you sort of reflect that on his background and how, you know, if you are outnumbered, a gun can help. And he doesn't have the snobbery of the Safavid elite who, who would look down on this and show off their archery. No. But more, more importantly, he's good. Yeah. You know, he's a really fast study. So he rises through the ranks so that this governor of Khorasan notices him. And, you know, by all accounts, he's a withering fellow who makes everybody's life hell. But he notices Nader and he allows him to rise through the ranks. And he's so impressed, he marries his daughter off to Nader. So, you know, things are starting to look up for Nader Shah. Meanwhile, things are going to shit in Persia. Right, <laughs> in Persia. And the guys who come now and invade Iran are the Gilzai tribe, who we last met on the retreat from Kabul in 1842. Do you remember in the in our Great Game episodes when the British are trying to get out of Afghanistan, having foolishly tried to take it in the middle of winter? And the people who ambush them and cut them up in the passes, the Kabul Pass and so on, are this same tribe, the Gilzai. And the Gilzai are like Nada. They're, they're herders and nomads. But they're Afghans. I mean, they're very much Afghans. They would identify themselves Afghans. Very much Afghans, but dirt poor, nomadic Afghans. And these guys would have been exactly the sort of people that the Toffs, Safavid Toffs, sitting in the glories of Isfahan, would have looked down their nose very, very uh, obliquely at. Yeah, that would have been one of the options. But what they actually end up doing is not looking at them at all. So what this, you know, Shah Let It Be does, Shah Hussein, he just withdraws into his palace. He doesn't want to hear what the girls' eyes are doing, and he doesn't want to meet the girls' eyes force on force, head on. You know, he doesn't have the right people advising him. So the girls' eyes just make, hey, they're led by a man called Mahmoud at the time, who advances on Isfahan. 1719, they start, 1722, they get to Isfahan. Yeah, and he's stripping local leaders of all of their wealth. There is a horrible siege. And the Safavids have to surrender the city of Isfahan, their great capital, the most beautiful place in the world, the place of, of high fashion, of, as we heard last uh, episode, of uh, delicious rice dishes and gorgeous squares and polo matches, all this sort of snobby stuff. And a bunch of herders, the, uh, the Gilzai from Afghanistan, take the city in October 1722. And they humiliate Shah let it be, Shah Hussein. They make him hand over all his symbols of royalty. They appoint themselves to all the positions of power. He is utterly reduced to nothing and he just fades away. He dies. Now, you know, the death of, of Shah Hussein also signals just the most horrific time for Persians in, in the greater realm. Our friends, the Russians, turn up at this point, don't they? 
Yeah. So you've got, you know, sort of Peter the Great, who's, yeah, flexing on one side. You've got the Ottomans, who never cease to flex, uh, advancing into the Caucasus. And the whole thing is just miserable. And particularly nasty for the persons who now, having converted to Shiism, are regarded as just ripe for enslavement by the Ottoman army. So the, the Ottomans don't just slaughter these guys. If they capture them, they immediately turn them into slaves and deport them to the furthest ends of the empire. Mm. But Shah Mahmud's going to meet his comeuppance shortly because he allows or does not stop the son of Shah Useless uh, and this is a man called Tomasp, from escaping. And he is now the, you know, the Safavid heir. And as we've said in previous episodes, there is something very important about being of the Safavid bloodline. You know, it is, an, it is a trace back to the prophet. It is the bedrock of, of Shiaism. But Tomasp is, manages to get away. And they're after him. They're trying to find him. They're trying to, to hunt him down. So this is the kind of turmoil that is going on within the realm. So this is the point to which the Safavid Empire and, and this reformed Persian world reaches its lowest point. There are the Ottomans nibbling away on one side, the Russians charging through the Caucasus and attacking Georgia, and the Gilzai, even the humble Gilzai, have seized Isfahan, half the world. And this is probably a good place to take a break before we plot Nader Shah's rise to power. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So just before the break, uh, we were giving you this picture of a place that is disintegrating, a place that is once again being driven into what feels like a civil war where new rulers are persecuting old inhabitants and it's all miserable. And this is where Nader in Khorasan is learning 
how to use his power and his influence. So as you remember, maybe he married the governor's daughter in Coruscant. And it puts him in a really good position in a tiny little kingdom, if you like, to start learning about rule. And he rules with terror. Even back then, you know, there are accounts that this is a man who has people flogged frequently. But he's also, from the beginning, someone that really takes his army craft, his military, the art of war, very, very seriously. He drills his infantry daily on the European model. He imposes this on his troops. And there's a Greek traveler, Basilius Vatsatsis, that observes they would attack from various positions and they would do wheels and counterwheels and close-up formation and charges and disperse formations and then close up again on the same spot. And this is very much, this infantry warfare is exactly what Frederick the Great is is doing in Prussia. It's what the French and the very early East India Company are introducing to the south of India, and you're about to have the first of the Carnatic Wars breaking out. Sonata's absolutely on the money. He's right up there, although he's stuck in the Central Asia. But, but I mean, is it likely that he's doing this through instincts, William? Because, you know, I, I can't imagine, you know, the illiterate shepherd boy sitting down and reading great tomes of military strategy from Europe. No, but I'm quite sure that there were sufficient Europeans in Persia with their new techniques of musketry and so on, and working already on the fringes of the Safavids. One of the things that's very clear about uh, Nader is that he understands how to use Europeans, and he does use European gunners. Later, later he will. Yeah, I mean, at the moment, he's still, you know, we're just, we're sort of about in his early 20s. And what he has coming from nowhere is this instinct. He's very meritocratic and innovative, and he is not stuck in convention. No. I mean, so, you know, whereas with the Safavid court, if your uncle was somebody important, you'd sort of end up commanding a, a, a legion or a battalion. Uh, but, you know, he just finds the best fighter and he promotes them and he says, right, you've got 100 men, you've got 50 men, you now have to draw them. And he builds a professional army, which exists to fight. And so, you know, one of the things that he does is he mobilizes them constantly, in, rather than, you know, you get a call-up period and then you have your time away, furlough. No, they're always, always on manoeuvres. They're always doing something. And he's always finding places that they can go into so that they can be rewarded with the money and the loot. But he's also no fool politically. And he realises that the most valuable ally he can have is the young Prince Tamasp. And so quite early on, by autumn 1726, I think, he teams up with Tamask, who's declared himself now Tamask II, and together they have a bid to take on Khorasan. But there is a problem, because Michael Axworthy, the historian, says he's an ineffectual, lazy, vindictive alcoholic. <laughs> Tamask is a jealous and suspicious and inferior fighter to Nader, and that gives him the biggest chip on his shoulder when it comes to Nader, a man that he needs but also despises because he's just better. You know, he's a better fighter and a better leader. He's already becoming quite unstable, Thomas, when, when Nader decides to support his claim. You know, he's an alcoholic. There's a wonderful story you told me about the Russian emissary at court. Tell us that story. Oh, go on, you tell it. I'm glad you like that story. I love that story. Go on, you tell it. Go so on. the Russian ambassador, this is Peter the Great's ambassador, and he's in quite a tricky position because Peter the Great's been nibbling away, rather more than nibbling, gobbling up great chunks of the Caucasus, uh, as we heard in our Russian episodes. It's all beginning to fit together, this jigsaw of different empires. And 
Anyway, Shatamas learns that the Russian emissary at court has got a bottle of chikir, which is a sort of Georgian spirit, sort of somewhere between cognac and vodka, and threatens to behead every Russian in the party if he's not given the bottle. That's how to do diplomacy. Yeah, I mean, just imagine this man of such <laughs> such a high rank going, give it to me! <laughs> give it to me now! I like, like that feeling, though, at the end of an evening when you want a drink, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Soon after, uh, poor Shatamas, whether or not, because of drinking too much chikir, falls off his horse into a ditch and becomes covered in mud, uh, which is also blamed on their mystery, <laughs> before then also blaming him for the loss of his kingdom. So things are going downhill for Shatamas, but it's quite clear that the rising man is Nadir. Although he's, uh, he's just a shepherd's son, this is his moment. And he pushes back the Gilzai and takes back the capital of Khorasan. And Nader is given this title, Slave of Tamas, which sounds like a terrible thing to be, but actually it was the most honoured position to be. You know, you are the slave, you are the faithful servant of the king. This is rather like sort of social media humble bragging. When you say I'm humbled by something, when actually you're quite smug about it. And being slave of the king is slightly to say that you're his chief general. It's the kind of an inverted honor. And there's this old tradition, as we know uh, in, in Islamic kingdoms, of the ghulam, the slave warrior, who's often the, the prime minister, who often rises to be the, the main man in court. So this is very much Nadir. This is his moment. He's coming up now. And it, I mean, it could have been okay. It could have been okay if Tamas wasn't such a small-minded git. But, you know, he is so deeply threatened. He sees Nadir as being too... Um, successful as a leader, too admired by his people. So he starts denouncing him as a, as a traitor and starts sort of spreading, you know, through his eunuchs and not his network move. of uselesses. Yeah. And Nather's not having it. I mean, is it, if you think of the stern-eyed, loud-voiced, black-bearded man, he's not going to have this. So he turns on, on Tamas and he confiscates possessions, the possessions of his minister. He cuts off their supply lines. He effectively wages war on his king. His own boss. But what he does do, William, is, you know, he takes everything from Tamas. He makes it very, very clear that, you know what, you cross me, you're not in charge anymore. I in charge, but he doesn't take the title. He leaves him as Shah, which itself is interesting. And we've seen precedents of that as well in history, haven't we? It's basically a, a military coup. This is what we would call uh, in modern terms a military coup. And the leader of the army is taking the completely useless, but nonetheless elevated figure uh, of Tamas, who's from the royal line. And now he's reducing him to being a puppet. And interestingly, exactly the same time as this is going on, you have the same thing going on in Delhi. The moguls are being reduced to, to ciphers. And in the 1710s and 1720s, you have a whole series of moguls who are basically not allowed out of their palace and a series of viziers who are the real controlling power in the land. In my book, The Anarchy, we have the young Shah Alam, who's this wonderful, gallant poet prince who has to fight his way out of Delhi because the vizier is planning to have him assassinated exactly at this moment. So parallel lives. But Nada is a far more powerful, far more ruthless and far more effective character than any of the moguls of this period. And he, and he continues to push back against the enemies. I mean, notionally in Tomas's name, although Tomas is really not happy. He's sort of tried to manoeuvre, he's tried to plot, he's tried to send forces against Nada is faithful in Khorasan, and Nada just stamps on him with very heavy boots. One night, there's a story that Tomas realizes you know, how wretched his position is. He's the wretched king. So he tries to run away, but he's caught and he tries to stab himself to death, but he's stopped. And Nada wants him alive, but traduced. But not, you know, Nada carries on. He takes her out. He, you know, he's, he seems 
unstoppable. But then, you know, he starts to be noticed and the pushback comes. And we should say at this point that Nada has got a, just invented a brand new technology, which will serve him very well in the years to come. And this is a sort of camel-mounted artillery. The camels are taught to kneel down and reveal a small cannon on their back. It's the you know the gunpowder empire equivalent of the tanks in the in the early twentieth century. And I've seen one of these. They they adapted them also for horses. They yeah. have them in the National Museum in Delhi, and they're, oh, they're wow. mounted gazelles. And they're like very small cannon, but entirely mobile. And you can gallop them around the battlefield and surprise people from unexpected directions. So uh, paint me a picture because I've only read about them. So, I mean, do they hang on the side of the hump or on top of the hump? So I've seen a, a horse-born one, but um, it's the same principle. It's, it's basically got a sort of like a saddle, but rather than mounting a man on top of the saddle, you mount the gun. And it's a, it's a big, heavy wooden contraption with a small cannon attached to it. And what is it? A fire? What are balls of? What, what kind of thing comes out of it? Yes, large, large, two-inch maybe small cannonballs. Uh, so something in between the bore of a musket and and a full cannon, but very, very effective if it's being moved rapidly around a battle at speed. And camels can gallop pretty fast. We had one episode where they were set on fire and they galloped very fast and devastated an army. I mean, but look, this this one, I mean, there was one account of this, this use of this, that he is able to cut down his enemies like cucumbers, it said. So you can just imagine, that's a very visceral description of what he manages to do. And, and as you say, this what's so interesting about this is that it is an adaptation of the latest European technology. It's not, it's not just an, an imitation. He's taking these ideas. This is one of Frederick the Great's great military adaptations that leads the military revolution in Europe is the invention of horse artillery. And, and previously in medieval warfare, when you'd had cannon, these things were enormous, great big blocks. Like, have you ever seen Mons Meg on Edinburgh Castle, which I used to go and see? No. I used to show it off. as, and it, and it was, you know, it's an enormous cannon and it just sits there. But what Frederick the Great realizes is that far more effective than one big sort of enormous cannon that, that takes years to, to load and, and is immobile is horse artillery, which you can gallop to one end of the battlefield, fire a volley quickly from an unexpected position, and then move to another part of the battlefield. And this is the, the Khorasani version. You're using camels and small bore cannon, and it completely rips apart all his enemies. And this is the point at which Nadir now begins to push back against Persia's enemies. Especially the Ottomans. I mean, the Ottomans are, are, are too close for comfort. Very much. He's using the Ottoman and European technology against them. And uh, you're beginning to see pushback in the Caucasus against the Russians, pushback uh, west of Tabriz against the Ottomans, and particularly, I think, in Mesopotamia. So miserable Tamas is not allowed to stab himself to death, but is a king in name alone, is, is not able to do anything at all, except if Nader gives him the nod to do it. You know, don't even cough unless I say so. And Nader is not only is he stabilizing the region, he's stopping bits being chipped off, but William, he's taking great bits. Yep. He, he retakes both Armenia and Georgia. These are major victories. And, and in an era when you've seen Persia invaded by the Gilzai and nibbled away from all sides. This is a major surprise for everyone. Everyone's slightly given up on the Persians. And Nadir is now really taking on both the Ottomans and the Russians and pushing back the boundaries of Persia. 
So despite the fact that he's been so successful, he's taken back, you know, huge amounts of territory. He's taken back Armenia and Georgia. This is the jewel in the crown. He thinks he can have a day off. He goes back to Khorasan. But in the meantime, Tamas, who, remember, has been traduced and reduced, decides this is the time that he is going to exert his authority. He's the Shah after all. And he does this crazy deal undoing all of Nader Shah's achievements and makes a deal with the Ottomans saying, you know what, we'll give you back, we'll do swapsies, we'll give you back Georgia and Armenia and other territories, but you give us back Hamadan, Tabriz and Kermanshah. And it's not a it's not a good deal when there's so much blood and coin has gone into to taking Armenia, um, which is uh, Georgia, which is just vast, huge and important, strategically important. So, I mean, is Nader a man who is going to take that kind of backroom dealing well? Absolutely not. And this is the point where he begins to make his plot. And he decides that he's going to use, like a good judo partner, he's going to use Shatama's weaknesses against him. So what he does is that he invites him for a celebratory dinner in the famous Sadadabat Gardens uh, on the outskirts of Isfahan. And there's a review of the troops. And afterwards, Nadir invites Shatamasp to a sumptuous meal. Which he's paying for. Nadir is paying Nadir for, is paying by the way. He stumps it up. So, yeah. And both men drink wine and musicians uh, play to ease up the atmosphere. And Nadir encourages, of course, Tamasp to drink heavily, which was not a difficult thing anyway, because Shatamasp was a famously yeah. a drunk. And then Nada tells him that he's ordered an end to all state business for several days so that he can enjoy himself and properly relax. So Shatamas gets completely wasted, not to put it uh, too gently. And after lengthy jollifications, according to the sources, under Nada's grim eye, Shatamas falls into a stupor. And this is the point at which Nada moves in. He makes a speech to his men, jeering at Shatamas as this hopeless drunk. And once the Shah has fallen completely unconscious, Nada has him confined, shouldering aside Shatamas' personal servants and guards. And this has all been pre-planned, as Nada knew exactly how to do it. He calls together the officers of the army, the nobility, the courtiers, and the ministers. He shows them Shatamas, who's still lying sort of prostrate on the ground. And one account says that that Nada actually personally carries Shatamas out of the pavilion in which he's been lying and puts him down on the lawn of the gardens, roaring drunk. And the assembled noblemen see Shatamas' crown fallen to one side, his trousers are stained, the top of his head's dirty, has been lobbed on the grass. And this is the moment in which initially Nada imprisons him and crowns his son. And then before long, just decides that he, he's going to take power for himself. His infant son, there's a detail which is so tragic about that. He picks up this little child and says, right, Abbas III, you're going to be the new king. And he's crying his eyes out while he's being enthroned. Yeah. And that continues for some time. Shabas III is kept as a puppet for six or seven years. But finally, both are murdered at Sabzivar, in 1740 by Nadir Shah's eldest son, Reza Mirza. And that's the moment that the Safavids fall and the Afshars seize total control. So there follows, in the immediate aftermath of the coup, a battle with the Ottomans. And the Ottomans send their crack commander, this guy called Topol Osman. And he is, in, in many ways, Nadir's equal. And 
there are several months of counter movements on both sides with very similarly balanced forces. And Nadir realizes that what he really needs is more money so he can buy more mercenary troops, increase his artillery, and take on the Ottomans and the Russians properly. Well, I mean, this guy, Topar Osman, manages to kill 30,000 of his men. I mean, he's he's hurting for the first time in his life. He's hurting. Yeah, it's the worst defeat in Mesopotamia that Nada ever suffers. So this is what makes him decide, I need more cash. Where can I get cash? And then he suddenly realizes that the Mughals, this incredibly rich empire in India, are now on their feet and that their treasuries are bursting with jewels and gold. And so Nada decides to, as he nicely puts it, pluck some golden feathers from the Mughal peacock's tail. That's another quote, incidentally, from his Jesuit physician who he, who he talks to on a daily basis. And we have in this uh, Jesuit physician's diaries extraordinary access to Nadia's own personal thoughts. You know, what he's saying is he's being shaved in the morning, what he's saying at breakfast uh, as he's being examined by his doctor. And the Jesuit Pabazin is taking this all down and we have the details. So what happens is that Nadia, now the big daddy, now totally in command. I mean, can we can we say why he's the big daddy? Because that's actually what his troops Go call him. It. They call him Baba Bazorg. <laughs> Baba Bazorg was the name that they start referring to by, and that does literally translate as big daddy. So he is big daddy. <laughs> in a very literal sense. Anyway, we've told this story before in our Koinor episodes and it's the story that brought uh, Anita and I first together. So we're going to do a quick recap rather than tell you the whole thing. If you want the full story, go to our Koinor episodes. But yeah. in brief. Well, in brief, he is up against a man who, again, like the, <laughs> the uh, Shah, just as you like, is not really interested in leading. He's not very good at it. Uh, Mohammed Shah Rangila, uh, the great Rangila, the East Seat, the one who likes getting dressed up in women's clothes and throwing amazing parties, but is a really rubbish ruler. And in all sorts of ways, he's a very, very important character. And every time you enter an Indian restaurant in Britain and hear a sitar twanging, you have Mohammed Shah Rangila to thank for that because he brings what is at that point just a folk instrument in the Punjab into court music. Ditto the tabla. So there's all sorts of bits of, you know, that we now assume to be central Indian culture, which we have Mohammed Shah Rangila to thank for. But as you say, not a great ruler, not interested in war, the very opposite in many ways of Nadia, as gay and, and in every sense and as, uh, as florid as, uh, uh, as Nadia is grim, austere and, and, and obsessed with fighting. So in brief, this is what happens. Nada wants to go and capture Kabul, which he knows is the summer palace of the Mughals. And he thinks that if he can capture Kabul, there's probably going to be a nice fat treasury full of gems for him. And so he go, he crosses the mountains from Herat, where he's from, to Kabul, which is only a journey of about two weeks. And he falls on Kabul unexpectedly and takes it. And indeed, there are more jewels and gold than uh, he knows what to do with. And he realizes that the Mughals are simply not interested in spending their money as he would on mercenaries, on Gisales, on cannon, on these uh, extraordinary military maneuvers that he's obsessed with. So he carries on. And this is not part of the plan. He then goes down the Khyber Pass. He takes Peshawar. Nothing stops him. He goes on to Lahore, takes that nothing, no resistance. So finally, 
he and his camels with their natty little cannons on the back and his new horse-borne heavy Gisele artillery, which pierce armor, they finally come across the Mughals in 1739 at the Battle of Karnal. And according to some accounts, the, the, the Mughals bring three armies under three rival generals, which amounts to almost a million men, while the Persians have only got 160,000. But the Persians are absolutely cutting-edge technology. They've all got firearms, and the Mughals don't. The Mughals have merely got arrows. And as one of the chroniclers says, the Mughals fought bravely, but you cannot defeat musket balls with arrows. And what happens is that the Mughals line up over about 10 miles of the plains of Karnal, and in the bright light, this cavalry charge with heavy horse armor sets off towards the Persian lines. And the Persians just present their light cavalry in front. And at the last minute, they part like a curtain. And there are all these camel gazelles and these horse gazelles in front. And literally two minutes later, it's all over. The flower of Mughal chivalry lie dead on the ground. And that evening, in the famous bit of the story, Nada invites Mohammed Shah Rangila to dinner and the idiot goes and he takes his dancing girls and he takes just a handful of bodyguards because he trusts in Nada's honor. And Nada is not the kind of man to let this opportunity slip. That evening at the end of dinner, Mohammed Shah Rangila gets up to go back to his camp and Nada says, I don't think so. You are my guest now. Stay here. And over the next week, you have this stalemate with this enormous Mughal army effectively immobilized by the fact that its commander is sitting in the Persian camp, a prisoner. Eventually, Nada puts Muhammad Shah on his elephant, joins him in the howdah, and they march into Delhi together. Six weeks later, they leave with 8,000 wagons of loot, including our Kohinoor, including the Peacock Throne, including every other great gem like the Darianoor, which still remains in Tehran. Timur Ruby. Timur yeah. Ruby, all these wonderful things that people will be fighting over for generations to come. And Nada takes the whole lot back to uh, Herat, where he piles them up and puts them on display. And everyone is invited to see the treasures of the Mughals. So, I mean, you should think this would make this man happy, but it's sort of a, a, very shortly after this, he starts going completely mad. And, and it's an odd thing. And I wondered whether it had anything to do with it, the death of his mother, which happens at around the same time, because, you know, she's the one, the one from his past who knows him best of all and who was there for all the hard times, who's seen him ascend through the ranks, who will have told him how proud she is and loves him unconditionally, but she dies. And this seems to have affected him very deeply. Some people also say he got an illness, he was bitten by a mosquito, something happened. And he gets very sick. But he certainly turns from being just a murderous, successful general who's very ruthless, who kills you know anyone who gets in his way. But he starts becoming paranoid as well. And then there's an assassination attempt, isn't there? And an assassin nearly shoots him. The bullet, I think, kills his horse, but not him. And he convinces himself that this is his son, uh, Reza, the same man who killed Shah Tamasp and his son, Abbas III. Reza, who is himself a fairly ruthless figure, is hauled in and he is blinded by his father. And his father then sort of realizes too late what he's done 
and loses it. Because Reza always denies it. He always denies There's it. There's no evidence it was Reza at all. And Reza, yeah. Reza rubs salt into the wounds. He suddenly has this gasp of like coming out of this murderous red mist. And Reza look, well, looks at him with these bloodied sockets where there were once eyes and says, you should know that by taking my eyes out, you have blinded yourself. You have destroyed your own life. And he's right. And, and Nadia then sort of weeps and breaks down and says, what is a father? What is a son? And then he goes, of course, on another killing spree. He crosses Central Asia. He conquers Samarkand and Tashkent. Great victories. Uh, but his own people realize that their their leader is, is a complete psycho by this stage and has lost it. Well, he's a complete psycho who's built, and we haven't mentioned he builds pyramids out of skulls of the people that he kills. In the Timor fashion. Yeah, he's turned into just sort of this caricature nut job in charge. And it comes to a head on the 19th of June, 1747. Conspirators break into Nader's harem. And he wakes up. He just about gets his hand to his sword, but he trips over something, carpet or something, and he falls on the floor and the conspirators start hacking at him. They cut off his arm. They slash at him with sabres. And he begs to be spared, only to be beheaded. And there then follows this scene of complete orgy because in the camp is much of the loot he's brought back from Mughal India. And all the soldiers fall on this and there are scenes of complete mayhem and the peacock throne, the famous peacock throne built by Shah Jahan at what was it? Six times the expense of the Taj Mahal. Yeah. This studded sort of kiosk almost with solid gold, solid gems, the greatest jewels in the entire Mughal treasury where the Kohinoor originally was uh, the eye of the peacock. And this night that is hacked apart by maddened, drunken soldiers hacking at it with daggers and trying to pull out chunks of gold and, and the best jewels. Everyone's looking for the Kohinoor. It's actually with Nader Shah's chief concubine, who's called Chuki. She gives it in the morning to the man who will become the next great figure in, in Central Asian history. Amisha Abdali, who founds Afghanistan pretty much on its back. But again, we look more of that and go back to the Kohinoor episodes. But we should actually just, with this terrible death of Nader Shah, just reflect for a second on the scale of his conquests. I mean, he retook all Safavid territory, everything he took back. He sacked Delhi. Central Asia became his sort of piggy bank, pushed back the Russians, the Ottomans, much bigger forces than himself. And all from a humble shepherd boy. And Iranians are proud of him. I mean, they are, aren't they, to this day? You know, he's a, he's a divisive figure in, in India, hate him, but... One of his direct descendants uh, is my neighbour here in Delhi, and she is she's from the Afshar line, and she uh, is as imperious a figure as you can imagine uh, Nado was. I would, wouldn't cross her or her forebear for a minute. But uh, yeah, yeah. They, are, they are remembered as, as great figures. But at the time, clearly, you know, it was a sad decline, and, and he just became a psycho who needed to be done away with by his own people. An ignominious end, yeah. Just very, very quickly before we say goodbye, just I mentioned that Napoleon was a Nader Shah fanboy. And in 1808, Napoleon goes on to sign a treaty with Persia's Fateh Ali Shah. Who is the man with the most fabulous beard in Persian history. There's wonderful pictures of Fateh Ali Shah with his... Well, Google it. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, I mentioned at the top that Napoleon was an avid student of Persian history and really admired Nader Shah. That he does, in 1808, decide he's going to broker a treaty with Fateh Ali Shah because he wants to continue Nader's dream 
in a way. He wants to push into the Asian subcontinent and Bill it as a French revolution in India. But anyway, look, story for another time, maybe. And what he wants to do, and just to clarify, is he wants to get to India and unhorse the East India Company. Uh, he wants to use Persia as a corridor for taking the jewel in the crown. Anyway, more of that in the future. Uh, we're definitely coming back to India before long. Yeah, that was fun. That I was fun talking that. about a murderous man like that. But anyway, listen, thank you very much again for listening. That is it from us. Till next time, goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Durrumple. <laughs>